Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, this is a week, week's recap. And uh, I've been doing a lot of work with linear models. And one of the interesting things about linear regression that I realized late into the um, training was that the uh, what they call validation domain. And what validation domain is, is looking at a particular interval or cycle. They don't necessarily, it could be time, it could be some sort of count, but uh, some interval or cycle. And looking to see how the curve or the uh, coefficients fit the, fit the data. And so if you have, depending on how frequently you're sampling the data can determine whether how, um, your, whether your error is going up. So you can look, look at error from uh, three different ways. There, there's RSS, which is your residual squared sum error where you take your amount minus the average of the amount and then that becomes your residual and then you square it and sum it and uh, the uh, Also, you have uh, the RSM, so you could take your uh, sum of your mean error, so you take the average of your error, and uh, you sum that, and then you can square root it. And those um, errors tell you basically whether or not the curve, the the linear model is valid. And so if you have high error, then you know in your data that there's something that um, is not correctly being predicted. And so your prediction will probably not, the confidence level of that prediction will be less. So as I was thinking about that, there's another way to approach this and this is uh, XG boost regressor and uh, interesting enough what regressor does is it it's measuring that that uh, uh, error and it's adjusting the slope of the line based on an interval it determines where uh, there, there's an inflection point and uh, when I did a couple of, uh, the way you can determine there's an inflection point is um, you can analyze the data and you can go through an iterative process and determine in the iterative process where the inflection point occurs based on the error.
and uh, and then recalculate from that point forward to the next inflection point a new slope and that's kind of the way regress XG boost regressor works is it's uh, it's creating multiple slope lines so then in your prediction with the XG boost regressor it's going to be more valid because your error is reduced significantly and uh, it would be interesting I there's some data in the course that uh, um, where it uh, moves forward for a little while in an upward climb and then suddenly drops off and uh, if I were to apply that with XG Booster, um, it would probably, or XG Boost Regressor, it would probably adjust for that change in the slope. And uh, when I was tracking and doing predictions on the COVID uh, death count, and I used the XG Boost uh, Regressor, it did exactly that. It, at the inflection point, it changed its, uh, it's changed its slope. Um, so there is probably some argument that there's overfitting that occurs, but I think, you know, that it, it is a, uh, an advancement versus trying to do calculations and figure out on a daily basis where, what your, your, uh, range is. So that's, um, what the numerical method I did was looked at what the minimum range and what the maximum range where uh, the error was at a minimum and used that as my uh, validate, validation, valid range for my slope. And that's kind of a, uh, that's a good, better approach for determining what might, how you might want to break your data up for making predictions and within what time range you want to do that. But uh, it may not be practical when you have large amounts of data that are being ingested. And so um, I'm more inclined to look at this XG boost regressor as a, a possible solution. So the way you can do uh, regression, you can do it manually just by calculating uh, slope and yeah, y-intercept and if you know the coefficients then you know you can calculate a regression line uh, you could also use least square method uh, OLS and you can calculate a regression line that way or you can use optimize and then the last one, you can use linear regression, regression, linear regression. So there's three different ways, or four different ways to calculate linear regression. And then you can check for its error. Uh, you can get the coefficients for the interception and for the various coefficients for one or more. parameters 
the variables a of one or a of two in the uh, Taylor series. So you, it's not, it's it's possible that you can have multiple ways to, to get to solve your problem. But what um, what the author said was kind of interesting. He says, there's no one way that you can use. Each one will have its own strengths and you want to find and discover what those strengths are. And depending on the circumstance that you're uh, doing your data fitting and predictions uh, will determine what uh, what uh, tool library that you use. And uh, so you're looking at outcomes and then you're, you're looking to see if you feel like that for unknown data that it'll, the model will perform well. Because you're always comparing the model against your actual data and you're getting residuals. And those are, those, that residual is called error. And, uh, and as you look at those standard, if you're looking at the standard deviation of the residual, then you, it gives you an idea of confidence. If you have low residuals, you're going to have high confidence. But see, you have to also not just look at the confidence of what you're training with, but also the confidence for the unknown. And that's one of the powerful features of a, of a linear regressor is that is predicting into the future. But it still makes you wonder in many cases if you had, let's say you had, uh, like for example with restaurant tips, you have 10 different features that you're considering for predicting the tip price of the uh, restaurant. The question I would have in my mind is if you used, let's say, least squares and you calculate the um, prediction based on the coefficient of least squares in your Taylor series, will that will that prediction be accurate? And so, um, how do you get the, the feedback back into the system to improve the efficiency of the system? It has to be almost like a, a biological system. It has to be dynamic, self-organizing. And it has to be able to discover new models. And so, uh, it, it's... It's interesting that manually we do this and we think and we plug in the code and we write our own code and we test it. But it seems like also that the machine could be doing this on a constant basis. That is monitoring its feedback from the data that it's ingesting. It's reevaluating its models and then adjusting based on changes in data because maybe there's a new law regulation on on uh, restaurant tips that suddenly uh, changes the data prediction algorithm. And 
so the new data has to be factored in and weighed out and maybe there's new models that will fit the data better so again that's always the challenge with uh, the machine learning and AI is how well you can fit the data and uh, um, so I kind of, that's kind of a rant on that but uh, anyway I, I found that kind of interesting so I this tip, this tip data with the multivariant is going to be important. Uh, I'm going to look at it uh, through the OL least squares algorithm and make a prediction. Then I'm going to compare the results against uh, XGBoost regressor and see how the uh, performance looks and yeah, how close. What's what's the difference between the two? The two. Um, predictors or classifiers um, and see then there's the question of you know what's good enough where you know the, the, the thrive or striving for uh, higher efficiencies better performance you know, could increase complexity when in reality it's just a, a you know it's just within a statistical range um, but you know you, you do your best you, you apply what you know uh, and you think about it and and then you improve upon it uh, even with data database uh, programming I found that that there are certain approaches that you can take long term that have really good benefit like if you can set up a data warehouse then you can have some really good benefit in terms of extracting out your data and the same is true as if you can uh, uh, use analytical tools to pivot your data and aggregate it like Power BI versus SSRS Power BI is is a, a fantastic tool for analytic work, whereas SSRS is a, a great tool for generating a report that you're going to deliver to a manager. So the, you have to kind of like decide whether the task at hand is analytical, where you're going to allow the user to explore the data, or if it's uh, static where you're, it's a, just a reporting and a confirmation of where the company is at a certain point in time. And then there's also engineering. Uh, you know, we've been really heavy on the financial, the accounting side. But the, this, the type of data can apply to engineering where you're gathering data from devices, the Internet of Things. And... Uh, you're doing visuals on the data that is being collected by the, the devices. And this, the frequency in which it's collecting the data can be uh, very fast. It can be collecting lots of data on a continuous stream. And you're storing that in large data lakes for later ingestion of that analytics to see uh, what the trends are. Or you could watch uh, 
thermal maps of how things are changing over time. So I've been starting to think about not only machine learning as it applies to financials, but how it could also apply to engineering. And uh, that was kind of where I started in my uh, schooling was engineering and looking to solve problems with mathematics and calculus. I really enjoyed the mathematics because, it, like I had said before, it's, it's kind of like this this uh, world of communicating ideas that you can communicate a lot in a set of equations. And and it does allow you certain degrees of freedom to explore the world that you are surrounding you and understand it from the standpoint of data. Because data does tell a story if you can answer certain questions and uh, you can see certain trends emerge in the data that are, are uh, apparent. And so you want to also uh, measure your, uh, well, you can measure things in, you can calculate things in terms of covariance and variance, number of residuals, and you can calculate, you can determine what the slope is and what the y-intercept is by getting the covariance and the number of residuals. And that, that's an interesting concept because then by analyzing the covariance, uh, you're, you're also learning about whether or not things are correlating. And so later on when we get into classification, it, it, does, it makes more sense when we see the lasso algorithms and we see columns that don't correlate that we can basically discard because they don't they don't contribute to the outcome of the prediction and that that, that speeds up uh, that speeds up processing especially when you have lots of records large data sets and I'm sure that if as you as you get further into data science and and uh, you start reflecting on these uh, type of problems that you're looking at and, uh, and, and starting to explore the data and ask questions, that you're gonna get very, uh, looking at different algorithms to try to understand if they can help you explore the data from a different frame framework. remember like uh, Bayesian networks were really good because it uh, you could run what-if scenarios against Bayesian networks and you could based on probability determine outcomes and so Bayesian networks were fantastic in the sense of uh, looking at complex systems where there were lots of choices almost like a random forest where there was lots of choices and the outcome was based on uh, prob probabilities 
at certain leaves on the tree. So Bayesian network and the random forest would seem like a, they were very similar. And, and the, those were very powerful algorithms because based on the rules that were discovered in the data, predictions could be made. One thing I liked about Bayesian networks is it was uh, discrete, in other words, or uh, deterministic. You could you you knew what the rules were. You fed the rules into the network. You calculated you calculated probabilities, and based on the calculation of those probabilities, then you ran that through the network and it produced an outcome. And that was really cool. Um, and so that leads you to the next point, which is that uh, that machine learning and AI can be used to take action and make decisions. And I think that's really kind of the area where we're, it's pretty exciting to see if you can get machines to make decisions as well as human beings to comprehend the situation to assess all the factors that are significant and then to make a good decision because decisions require lots of thought lots of expertise and you have to have good context because you can make a perfect decision but it could be totally out of context and uh, So it has to be able to differentiate and distinguish things in the data just like human beings do. But I think that the I think that, that capability is is coming up, and uh, I, I feel like that uh, that there's lots of uh, technologies that are about on the verge of big breakthroughs and and uh, you know there's you're starting to see some of them where they're talking about code generation where you can take natural language and code generate it hasn't been it hasn't got to the point of being useful enough yet to, to try but suppose that uh, suppose that you spend 20 pages of code uh, in your pre-processing and in your data transformation and in your aggregation and then in your visualization plots and your uh, different uh, discovery algorithms. What if the machine could do all that for you with just uh, with a few simple commands that you give it and place your data in a certain area and it could do a lot of this programming that you would have to do from memory or documentation and let's say it's a repeatable that you do this process repeatable for most of the data that you ingest then then having the machine being able to generate this code would be really valuable uh, or if you're at your, your if you t 
tell the machine what type of problem you're trying to solve. Maybe it shows you all four different ways to, to solve the regression issue. And then you, you analyze the four different approaches, look at the coefficients, look at the errors, look at the accuracies, and maybe then you just say, okay, I, I think that this one would be the best. And then the machine selects that, and you use that in your, in your pipeline. And I think Microsoft is kind of moving that way, it seems like with their visual diagrams and how they're connecting one thing to another and uh, but as you but you still have to understand what has what is happening with the data and what is what happened with the mathematics it's not just wire things up and tell it to you know make decisions based on this data it's not that simple but it could be the machine could gain better comprehension and so it it becomes now a translator between different languages so you have the language of natural language processing to natural language to the language of python and where the machine could be really amazing is if the commands are fairly fast human side and they're connecting lots of data and making lots of uh, lots of uh, connections between the different data sets and visually the, they're understanding about the data and they're asking the machine to do different things and answer different questions and if the machine can respond quick enough by generating the code as a as a conversational piece. See, that's one of the things I was talking to one of the people on LinkedIn about is that the, the machine has to have a conversation back to the human being. One of the best ways to communicate ideas is code. So if it can communicate in code, which would be Python, what it is attempting to do, and it's understandable, then it becomes uh, acceptable. And uh, when machines don't make mistakes over long periods of time, then they become a standard. People don't question whether the ATM will work. They go to the ATM, they put in their card, it reads the card signal, it transmits over a secure network, it talks to a server, it authenticates that the, there's a ledger transactions that are gonna occur on the bank, and maybe going through an intermediate bank first, and authorizes the transaction, and then the machine dispenses the money. Or it accepts uh, and transfers money from one account to another, depending on the functions and features of the ATM. We don't think about whether or not that ATM is gonna work or not. It's generally accepted that that technology is proven and that there are safeguards in place if something didn't work. Um, but it's just a computer 
and it's making a transaction and it's processing those transactions. And the same with uh, machine learning pipeline, it'll be considered a transaction. And as those transactions become reliable and we become more confident in them, they will become a standard. So we'll see the introduction of machine learning and AI in the real world. I think there's going to be, it's going to be kind of awkward at first. Some of it's going to be a little bit, doesn't quite work the way we thought it would. We have to be educated on how to interact with the machine. Just like we have to, we had to be educated on how to interact with Windows. And we had to learn the terminologies and we had to learn the navigation. But the navigation and the terminologies eventually um, were taught in universities and, and uh, they were intuitive enough that if you tried them, uh, you could figure it out. There was YouTubes where people were demonstrating how to do the different technologies. And I think that that's gonna be more prevalent in the future. There'll be more explanation, more guidance, more training, and uh, that will allow uh, that will allow individuals to navigate the world of AI and machine learning. I mean, even with Visual Studio, I have IntelliSense, and I love IntelliSense. But what I've been talking about is something more like Refactor, where it can rearrange your code. It can figure out ways to optimize the code. It can point out places where there could be hazards in the code. Statistically, it could make your code more reusable. Uh, especially if it can comprehend the code that you read, it reads, and it can synthesize that code into something that's more efficient or more understandable, then why not do it? Because you as a programmer might not have that knowledge of how to do lambdas. And so you do, uh, or map lambdas, or, or dot apply lambdas. And so you might do it in a long for loop, when it could be actually, the code could be reduced down into a single line. And then, code blocks could be abstracted out into functions. So you could abstract it out into a function. Your code could be uh, reduced down into a single line. And uh, readability could be improved. And that, that works great for small portions of code. But what happens when you're talking millions of lines of code now with thousands of functions and features and lots of uh, data and you know you're analyzing bigger chunks of functionality uh, will the machine be able to interpret and analyze the data and provide summarizations of what's going on now, to me that would be kind of interesting you talk about uh, using Turing to understand text and being able to comprehend what it's reading and then be able to answer questions on terms of 
data that it's ingested or examples that it's been fed, it would be interesting to me to find out, you know, that whether or not um, it could comprehend things like data tables and what that would be. So a lot of times, like when if you came into a, like a huge system like SAP, where they have more tables than you can imagine, um, if it could analyze the tables and make sense of it, maybe even look up the data dictionary and translate everything into objects that make sense and then visualize create visualizations of how these objects interact with each other using the uh, schema and and then beginning to synthesize possible relationships that could exist in the data and doing this all automatically that's something that I was starting with with my hub idea where create kind of hubs of data like the way our brain does and uh, then you could you know if you add more data to the hub that's fine it, uh, it you can just expand the hub and th from off that hub then you can connect to uh, other tables and so you could you could explore your data programmatically and so if you're you're asking a question it could determine what hub possibly could navigate through and then it would attempt to analyze the possible routes and then see if any of the routes that it could navigate through would answer the question. So it becomes kind of a search algorithm and that's what intelligence is, is a searching algorithm. So if it could answer the question then we say, hey, that, that algorithm answered my question that I had relating to a specific uh, context. And so it has to determine and translate from the natural language that we say into something that it could identify as entities in the data, and then from those entities in the data, see if there's relationships between the entities that exist, and then Began to explore the data in terms of details to see if the details uh, could answer the question. Data Vault is a, gr a great idea. You know, it's moving data into the framework of the way our brains work. It has to be a way to retrieve the data in a way that is very intuitive and also allows for constant change in the data storage and structure. You know, some entities aren't going to change, you know, like uh, the entity of a road. It's not going to change, but the shapes in the, of the road could change depending on the location you, you live in. Uh, you know, the, the road has certain characteristics, but the navigation on the roads 
could be very different from California to Idaho. And there might be different rules that apply to navigation on roads in Colorado. So uh, those are the those are things that that Data Hub has to be capable of storing and, and retrieving. But as far as you know, locations, things like GPS locations, that'll never change. You just have your latitude and longitude, and uh, you know you can you you can use a shapely you can do is use a shapely function data to to create polygonal boundaries, and then you can find out uh, where roads are if, if you have the shapely polygon. So you could be transmitting your location to the server, and it could be then looking up different polygons based on latitude and longitude that represent roads to tell you whether you're on the road or not. Um, that's just one way. That's one way when I was analyzing the uh, crime data that I was able to look to see where these crimes were occurring. And uh, I could have probably broke it down into cities using the shapely functions and um, because there was a lot of them and I could have just pulled that in and it's really amazing because I think we need with data site the next generation of machine needs to have terabytes of data and probably thousands of CPUs because we're now talking, when we start analyzing data, we're talking about big data sets. And we want to be able to uh, massively parallel process a lot of the data. And we can, and it can uh, automatically begin assigning different tasks to uh, different uh, processes or threads to return results. You know, so one way to do this is search all the all the uh, roads in the area simultaneous or sequentially, or um, to give each process an area and then give it a a location and then let the all the processes run simultaneously and then return the results back to a controller and, and then. Transmit a decision of whether they're on the road or not, and what and what roads are coming up. Maybe that's the, also the thing that would be interesting is is to go have some sort of vector that does that. And you know, it's interesting if roads are are really stored as latitude and longitude. Maybe they're not. Maybe it's a different coordinate system altogether. Because latitude and longitude only recently has become very accurate. It used to be, you know, there was different levels of granularity that you could assume in your um, in your model. That's the recap for this week, 
and uh, if you're uh, from another country make sure you uh, follow me on either uh, Twitter or on Anchor and uh, it'll, it'll show up and leave some comments if you have some topics that you're interested in learning about or if there's some thoughts that I was able to share that um, might be have caused you to think about some other possibilities for building your business or or um, um, implementing AI and ML in uh, the company you work for.